when I lived in Marchmont and Newington, there was a period of about two weeks between the end of June and the beginning of July yeah. where it was... Because, as you know, it's light until 11 o'clock. It's the most remarkable yeah. time of year. Which bit of the city are you in? Uh, Morningside. Oh. We, we, we first lived in Marchmont. Oh, we which street? In, we lived in Thurston Road, just near the paths. Yes, I know Thurston Road very well. Very studenty nowadays. It is nowadays. Yeah, in those days, students lived with landladies. Oh, of course. <laughs> Did you ever run into Ian Rankin, Sir Ian Rankin? Um, I see him occasionally in Waitrose. Oh, <laughs> that, that is a story in and of itself. Am I to introduce you as Emeritus Professor Cliff or just Cliff? Uh, I think you can just do Cliff for purposes. Of oh, well, <laughs> uh, even though you are the em- Professor Emeritus of Planning and Spatial Development at Harriet Watt, a fine university where when I lived in Edinburgh, I didn't get too nearly as much as it's a lovely campus. Um, how often do you get down there nowadays? Well, uh, since the pandemic, um, not at all, really. I, I normally do a couple of lectures a year, um, but during the last couple of years, they've been done online. Were you able to come down to London for your investiture for the OBE? Yeah. yeah who who gave it you? Prince William. Ooh, you should have sent him a birthday card. He's just turned 40. <laughs> Um, it, it, it didn't send me one, so... Were you able to mention that you were uh, a football fan like he was? No, um, he'd obviously been very well briefed, as I suppose they are on all these things. So um, he talked about uh, planning in the Commonwealth, and um, I'd already I'd met Prince Charles a couple of times. And his foundation had got quite involved with Commonwealth Association of Planners that I was president of at one stage. So um, so that's really what, what he talked about. And I think geography, I think you mentioned that, uh, that he was a geographer too. Originally. That's true. A geographer yeah. at uh, a university a bit further up uh, the fourth yeah. bridge. Uh, yeah. have, have you been up to... Because St Andrews is two streets. It is the most amazing city. It's got the north and the south street and then a massive great big golf course where next month there will be the open golf tournament. It's a it's a wonderful place. I remember going there 2007 with my dad. We watched the Derby in the restaurant at the old course. I, having lived in Edinburgh so often uh, for five years, I studied classics. So I was around George Square for four years. Uh, and so whenever there's someone Edinburgh based, I always ask how they are. Um, so you're in Morningside. So, so, so has it been a nice couple of years there? Well, I say I've really not been out much, to be honest. It really changed. You know, my life was uh, kind of going here, there and everywhere. Um, and I was also busy in the city because I'm chair of the Coburn Association, which, as you may know, is the um, Civic Trust for Edinburgh. And so, you know, I was in quite a lot of meetings with people from uh, other heritage bodies or the council or press or whatever. But it all changed in March 2020. And so I'm just really kind of venturing out again. I'm going to um, Katowice next Sunday for the World Urban Forum as part of the Scottish Government delegation on that. Will you take copies in your suitcase of your book, Programmes, Programmes, Football from Wartime to Lockdown, to give out to various social historians because they must know you've written this book because you're the big wig i've 
take it for a few friends that might meet there. Excellent. And this book, which I saw in Waterstones Piccadilly yesterday, it's an immaculate book. It's got the Duncan Olner cover. It's out on pitch. It's in hardback. And it's a mixture of social history from your life, which started a long, long time ago, uh, to today, where, and I'll start here, you went to, was it Wembley you went to for a cup final and you gave away the big glossy magazine that they call a programme? No, that was a game in Chicago, actually. Ah, of course. It was an America's Cup game in Chicago. Um, I think it was uh, probably Argentina against um, maybe in Jamaica, I can't just remember now. We did see, we did see, no, Panama it was, uh-huh. we did see Messi score a hat-trick, yes, having, come, right. having come on as a substitute, so it was a bit of a privilege to be there, but yeah, the, 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 the glossy, uh, the, the glossy magazine so-called programme we gave to a kid. And you ask, quite a bit um, rhetorically, will he keep it, will that be <laughs> with him? We are in the Football Library Emeritus Professor Cliff Haig. It's got every book ever published on pitch, like yours. But there's also a section full of programmes as far as the eye can see. Before we went on air, I know you said your wife Irene tolerates your collection. Uh, You're in a room that she never goes into. uh, And there are selections of programmes made and mentioned in this book. You go through the last 70 years or so of football in England... It isn't programme, programme, programme. It's anecdote and narrative and social history. We'll talk a bit later about the way your affection for Manchester United has been transferred to FC United of Manchester. Obviously, a lot has changed. But what struck you during your research uh, that changed more than most things? To a previous generation of players and fans, potentially untold riches. I mean, one of the the stories in the book uh, is about the demise of Third Lanark in, in Scotland in the in the 1960s. And there, you know, the, the chairman um, who drove them into the ground was basically, you know, fiddling the books to the extent of pay, paying his daughter, who I think was 14 at the time, um, a fiver a week to work as a secretary. You know, the contrast between this kind of, you know, small-scale skullduggery and the, the scale of the, the money that was involved after the mid-90s, is just mind-boggling, really. There was a chart I saw in the Times. It said that even since the Glazers took over, the commercial revenue has ballooned. It's like eight or nine times as much as it was. And even back when the Glazers took over, they were about the only ones who could exploit the global marketplace because they had the money to do that. Chelsea, of course, had their oligarch to help exploit the globe. I think it was globalisation, wasn't it, yeah. that, that created this. I mean, it was true, you know, it's true in the hamburger industry as well, you know, that what happened after the um, implosion of the Soviet Union and the opening up of China was suddenly, you know, the, the, and, and the technology, of course, I mean, it's one theme through the book is the significance of technology, which often gets uh, overlooked, whether it be floodlights or, or particularly TV. So, I mean, I, I can remember being in... Um, I think it was Beijing, certainly in China, uh, in what must have been 97, I think, um, and flicking through the channels, the the Chinese channels on my telly in in, in the hotel, and suddenly seeing, you know, the live broadcast from Old Trafford with um, Paolo Wanchop sashaying through the United Defence to score. Yeah, and, you know, kind of almost 
you know, doubly rubbing my eyes because I think it was by this stage it was probably about getting near midnight and uh, and also was that really true? Did he really do that? You know, what a goal. Um, but yeah, you know, you, you suddenly realised that uh, that this market could be tapped. And again, I can remember being in in China because um, you know, I went quite a lot after that. Uh, I, I can remember being there probably about 2000, 2001. I've seen these kind of huge, you know, posters for probably for Adidas or somebody. I can't, I can't remember who, you know, with people like Beckham and Zidane and, and so on. And then you know, some Chinese player who had no idea who it was. So yeah, the, the whole the whole potential for for tapping into a massively enlarged consumer market um, was there for the taking, and many people did. I mean, you mentioned Chelsea, and in my experience, you know, they're, they've been particularly visible in West Africa, and, and that's no surprise again, because, you know, there were role models there, that there were star players from that part of the world. And so, you know, you, you, you had the situation, you know, the Chinese one is, st- is still interesting, isn't it? Because didn't City have a Chinese fullback? Um, Sun Jihai. But yeah, you know, and United had had a guy who was a centre forward. Don't thank you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, um, the, the city man did better. But uh, you know, the the attempt to kind of cultivate uh, uh, an overseas market through a an identifiable local staff, lo- local to the market rather than to the place uh, uh, at the at the Premier League. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's clearly something that clubs will still be working on. Yeah, and it's it's absurd. I've just I've just written this book about the youth cup, and you can tell what the first uh-huh. chapter was going to be. And it was amazing to see just how far ahead United were. Even the presence of Gordon Banks in the the goal for I think Chesterfield for one of the youth cup finals um, was powerless to stop you. In fact, I don't know why I'm saying probably because you would have seen it. You would have gone to these youth cup finals, surely. Yeah, I, I, I saw some of the Youth Cup games here again. I mean, I moved to Scotland in, in 68, so uh, I, I obviously saw less United games after that. So George Best, Dennis Law were integrated into a team which already had Bobby Charlton in it. I think Henry Winter called Charlton England's greatest ever player. Has anyone since then, Giggs, Van Nistelrooy, Canton, are come close to Charlton? Did you have a favourite player? Duncan Edwards. Oh, of course. I've, I've, I meet I mean, very few people who have seen him play Duncan Edwards. Yeah, well, there's not many of us left, I guess, yeah. now. But Edwards was just what everybody says of him. He was just outstanding. But Charlton, I remember one game, I think they played Coventry. I don't know when, kind of mid-60s. And I just remember kind of watching from fairly high up in the stands where you can sort of see all the patterns, you know, you can see who's moving where and that. And, uh, you know, his control of the game was was outstanding. And, of course, strong shooting as well. The nearest, more modern equivalent would have been Paul Scholes when he was playing midfield. But Charlton also seemed transformed after Munich. I mean, he carried them at the end of that season, 57-58. You know, particularly, I remember the West Brom Cup tie, um, where he set up the, the decisive goal in the last minute, um, when it was still nil-nil. And, uh, yeah, he, he was absolutely silky, powerful player with, with lots of insights into into passing options, short and long range. Yeah, outstanding player. Your best mm. wasn't bad either. So I hear, short of Clough and Ferguson, I don't think there's been as much literature about best 
as anyone else. They seem, as Cantona does, I think, to drill down to something about the human condition, either it's winning or telling it like it is, or having these demons, Clough and Best, both like to drink. Best packed so much into his life, like a George Michael or a Prince figure. Now we'll turn to the cultural artefact of which you have 2,000, and in the football library there are shelves and shelves of them, which are evidence of teams, players, local businesses, change in dialing codes. I always like looking at how you had a, an 0181, and now we've got 0208. Um, it's just another way of reaching into the past. So um, you promise uh, in this book, Programmes, Programmes, Odd Adverts and Quirky Tales... Is there one that you've been telling people at dinner parties or virtual uh-huh. meetings in the last few years of your research? Uh, well, I think, yes, there, I, I don't really do dinner parties, but we went to a game in Denmark in the late 80s because uh, we were on holiday over there. And uh, we got the programme, which um, included uh, something about um, Trevor Francis, who at that stage had I think might have been at QPR and was basically running down his career but they, they, they were, the, the, the Danish team was going to play a friendly or something against QPR so there was a little feature on um, on Trevor Francis so uh, I I tried putting into cause I, not surprisingly I'm not very fluent in Danish I tried putting into Google Translate the text underneath um, the picture and it came back that uh, his big ambition was to slide as many shovels as possible, and I I kind of wondered what you know a shovel slider actually is. So so that was really one pretty quirky and bizarre mm. one. But some of them are also again indicative of the times. The the there's the one about the um, the the Millwall player in the 1950s who uh, scored a couple of goals in a cup tie against Newcastle and was being talked up as a possible transfer for a, for a bigger club and the, the club uh, basically bought him a Ford Zephyr and uh, that at, which at that stage was like the top of the range, it was a, a, a sort of British version of the, the big American cars of, of the era the, the gas guzzling cars and uh, you know that, that, was, that was enough to, to secure his future with Millwell although sadly he then suffered a, a leg break soon mm-hmm. after but you know again this there's this sense of um, the, of the social change between the, the scale of aspiration. You know, I don't think many of uh, even championship players today would 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 really look to a car like the Ford Zephyr as the height of their ambitions. So, so there's a number of them. There's, there's adverts that are printed upside down. There's there's doggerel poetry that was winning poetry competitions, um, and lots of lots of little stories of of, of individuals and, and quirky chairmen and, and so on. When I went up to Old Trafford for the first time, uh, we saw United against Spurs. I think Sheringham and Solskjaer played that game. I remembered getting the programme uh, and it being completely different from the programme I was used to because, as regular listeners to the Football Library Radio Show will know, I went to Spurs a lot and Dad would always buy me for £2, something to look at for the first half an hour before the game. Uh, And it was... I haven't... I've kept all of them in binders. I don't know why. It's one of those, I think it's a male thing. But um, very few of them 
were useful to me when I was writing about Spurs of that era, because it's all very much what's your favourite colour, Stefan Freund. Um, But because it was an Alan Sugar company, of course, it was all commercial. It had all the ads for various things and Club Call, the number for Club Call, which I never rang. I wanted to ask you about the change in media from the print media to Club Call to teletext media or digital media and then MUTV, because as you've documented in this book, it's the media. The medium is the message. Yeah, I think, well, again, it's part of this thing I mentioned earlier about changing technology from, in the end, print to digital. Opens up, again, whole new possibilities and even potentially presages the the end of the programme as we know it. I mean, why, in a sense, do do you need a programme today when you can get all the information on the phone? You know, if you want to know who... The, the background of one of the visiting players is there on your phone. You can, you can just Google him. So I think it really poses a, a, a big challenge. As also, of course, again, as I mentioned earlier, links into the globalization. You know, you sell programs at the match, but you can sell digital content globally. And so you get the situation where most people watching a match are not actually at the match. And that, you know, is a, a, bit, a big change from the world that I grew up in where it was very, very difficult if you weren't actually at the match to, to see some of these players. Yeah, it was amazing to remember that you could only find out the lineup of a Youth Cup tie if you were tuning into a radio that happened to be there and had the news, or if you were there in the ground. The, the United way is, certainly in the 90s, it was a guy called Ed Friedman, whom I don't know if you've met, Ed. No. No, Ed was poached from Spurs and used Cantona as a kind of cash cow and did the videos and the magazines. It was Ed who tapped into that because people want more of a United thing. It became a brand in an era where not many other clubs were because they were still community-focused. Arsenal, for instance, I think it took Thierry Henry to take them to a kind of global stage. Are you delighted, therefore, that FC United and Manchester, either through its programmes or through its existence, are just local, a local football team for local people, albeit there has been a lot of behind-the-scenes shenanigans, which I'm sure you won't comment yeah. on? No, I, I, I'm not close. I may be a member, but I'm not an owner. But I'm not close enough to comment on the shenanigans. But, yeah, I mean, I, I go on to the games. I feel it's a nice atmosphere. I feel at home in, in, in the club. I feel that people like me around me in the ground and uh, I feel I can identify you know, with, with the project and I think as I make clear in the book, the project is much more than just um, you, you know, a squad on a Saturday uh, it includes not just the women's team and, and academy teams and things like that but a whole range of outreach in the area of Manchester that I actually come from um, which you know, remains quite uh, an area of, of quite deep social need so I think that the, the 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 club is really you know part of that community and putting putting its efforts into supporting that community, uh, and in turn it gets it draws support from it. So yeah, I think that's that's a, a contrasting model. Uh, I think the yeah you, you mentioned Thierry Henry. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I, I don't know Vieira maybe. Vieira yeah. was that thing before it. I think he, he again. Or Burkamp, yeah. Yeah, Bergkamp. I think I think the origins of the the sort of media switch were, were actually back in the days of uh, of Betamax and uh, VHS, because um, 
there's a stage certainly where you know United and I think other clubs were putting out sort of monthly videos that you could buy uh, that uh, or, or season you know season review videos with with the highlights and things. So so the change actually starts in the in in the eighties, but again it's really once you get in the nineties and the digital era that the whole thing um, just you know magnifies because you can reach a much wider audience with the media and with the the changes that are taking place um, in in the wider economy. If I can bring in my club, in 2000, Watford were already relegated, but I had tickets, I think it was in the rookery, if not in the rookery end, in the family stand, but I have a vivid memory of... Um, United winning 3-2 and they played quite a good side that day because Alex Ferguson I think wanted to hammer the opposition for some reason that day it was in a particularly uh, pug oh, it could be because Graham Taylor was in the opposite dugout I don't know but uh, yeah so I saw Manchester United play at the Vic Watford have had season in review DVDs these days 10 years into the Pozzo regime uh, Scott Duxbury's chairman's notes are put on the website the days before the game the social media content is definitely aimed at under 30s people younger than the players and yet there's this whole tranche of fans who remember not just the Taylor days but uh, the Barry Endine days and the Ken Furphy era of um, the late 60s early 70s it's the same club but it's just a different club if that's crass enough with United as well from the best Lord Chartner and the Busby Babes, it's almost as if they're using that heritage to get new fans and then splitting off the history and go, yeah, watch this, watch Ronaldo do his CU celebration. There must be a disconnect between even pre-Martin Edwards and post-Glazer era. Yeah, I think, I think so. It's, it's particularly marked at United because, as you said earlier, you know, they've, they've probably done it on a scale and an intensity and over a duration. That, that other clubs um, have followed. The sense of togetherness with, with the club uh, has been much diminished. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, as I mentioned again in the book, that you know, the then United goalkeeper in the, in the early 1950s used to run a, a corner shop selling sweets and tobacco you know, in the terraced housing area where I lived. I mean, I can't really picture David De Gea doing that. And... Um, you know, players basically were were much more rooted, I think, in, in their communities. They they would still live at home in some cases, like mm-hmm. Wolf McGuinness, for example. You know, they weren't living in mansions out in Cheshire. And, well, the, the whole game has changed, hasn't it? I mean, you know, the tactics have changed, the patterns have changed, the stadia have changed. You know, we're talking about a long time period, and most things have changed quite a lot over that time. But has it been good? It's been good in terms of, Undoubtedly, the quality of the players now is, is higher, the game's faster, the passing's better, the balls are better. I mean, those, <laughs> the, the, I remember kicking those old, old footballs. Yeah, old, never mind the problems with heading it, you almost broke your foot when you kicked it. Um, there's been such significant change, but uh, it has also come at a price, I think. And that price, I think, has been the exclusion of quite a lot of the kind of kids who would have gone to a football match and the the sense of, of rootedness in in that place which was always a part of the of the of the British game yeah and it's so sad that kids nowadays because I grew up 
going to matches mainly at White Hart Lane for four or five years uh, and playing FIFA and various soccer simulation games. That seems to have bred a love of particular players and their skills where at the same time I've been arguing that this World Cup that I don't care about, I'm going to find something else to do in November and December. It's more about systems and fitting into a kind of Busby-esque or um, even older system of four at the back, three in the middle and three up front, just working around tactics. Um, Not that it's done Man United a fat lot of good in the last few years, but Eric Ten Hag is the era that you're supposed to support now. Not the first Dutch manager, but the last Dutch manager said you're joining a circus. Um, what advice would you give to Eric Ten Hag as someone who has watched Manchester United for most of your life? Um, probably keep an eye out for the next job. <laughs> That's true. You give him two years, three years? Well, it will depend on events, but uh, I think I'd err towards two rather than three. I mean, I think he's got a, a huge challenge. Yeah, you know, I've got a email group with a, a, a group of uh, old fogies like myself who are United fans and we've, we've been saying the same thing for three or four years you know that there's at least half a dozen players there who needed to be moved on not not this summer not last summer but you know, two or three summers ago and um, you know they haven't really done that and now you, know, you, you feel the cupboard is, is relatively bare there's some promising players at youth level but as we all know, it's, it's a huge step up nowadays. It used to be much easier, I think, to, to make that transition. But, you know, when, when when you're in clubs that are based on kind of global level stars, it's it's harder and harder, I think, for people to come through the system. So I think he's he's got to, he's, he's obviously got to make some good signings. Whether he'll manage that, I don't know. It's presumably the same recruitment process that's going to be gone through. There may be some tweaks to it. But it's the people who've made so many bad decisions over the last 10, 12 years who are still making the, the basic decisions about the appointment of a manager, the appointment of, of scouts and so on, and eventually the, the signing of players. You know, you think some of the, the, the farces that they've gone through with uh, you know, the, the sort of last-minute signings and things, the Fellaini mm. situation, they don't really inspire confidence. But again, you know, I don't... I don't feel it's my club in the same way that it used to be. You are a legacy fan, as um, you, you may have heard last year, the ES, European Super League, of which United wanted yes. to be part. I mean, that's, yeah, they can pitch football to the young, and that's where they'll make the money in merch. But the people who actually go to the games, I think the average age of an old Trafford crowd member is 60. The stadium's falling to pieces. They're only just getting round to it. The Glazers are taking money out to pay the debt. It's not a football club anymore. It's a spreadsheet. And the worry is that clubs like Watford will become a spreadsheet too. Um, but enough of that. And I wish Manchester United luck. I don't care because I don't follow the Premier League anymore. But as long as people in Salford are happy with it and uh, your mates up in... Which bit of Manchester did you grow up in? Happahay and Moston. Moston. Um, the process of writing this book, Programmes, Programmes, Football and Life from Wartime to Lockdown, uh, is greatly changed from your academic work in planning and spatial awareness... Uh, was it nice using actual words rather than jargon? <laughs> um, I don't think I use jargon in uh, in, in my, uh, my my professional work. I try to write uh, clear. I write a monthly. Well, you're an anomaly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I am an anomaly. I write a monthly blog for um, a site that's uh, that's looked at by basically by practitioners. 
so I have to write um, stuff that, that's comprehensible. Very good. But uh, but no, I think obviously my background, both from Manchester and then Scotland, but also my academic background, clearly influenced the way that I approach the book. You know, I I kind of used to asking questions and trying to look behind the the surface for what's what's actually happening. And so I think when I came to look at the programmes, you know, I began to see that as well as the team sheets and the manager's notes and and so on, um, you know, there were graphics in there, you know, that just the, the, the front the cover pages themselves you could you could write a book about actually. The the, the imagery that's on there, I mean to just touch on what we talked about earlier, so many clubs used to have an image of the home ground on the front. And you think what that's saying, you know, you're saying this is home, this is this is you, this is your club. And um, so you know, it very quickly became clear that there were there were stories behind the the, the pages. Uh, I think particularly the one that got me started was the, the one from the wartime programme where it said that uh, spectators will remember the, the FA regulation that the game will only be abandoned in the event of enemy aircraft being visible overhead. Which I thought was was kind of classic uh, stiff upper lip, yeah. you know, keep, keep calm and carry on. Uh, and it added that you know, um, in the event of an air raid, that, that there's shelter under the stand. And you know, it, it just it just hit home how how um, you know what what that experience must have been to be standing there on the terraces watching a match and keeping you high on the skies above you to see if there was. Uh, uh, you know the, the risk of, of being victim of an air attack. Mm. So, so that that triggered me off. I began to think, hey, you know, there's more to these things than you than you might imagine. And then you look at the adverts and the the photographs. Who's there? Who's not there? Stories about the club. Whole range of things. The league tables. The clubs that's gone up. The clubs that's gone down. How that reflects the changing geography of UK really as well. Um, I think there's a bit where you, you see that quite a lot of the, certainly during the 1980s, when of course there's a lot of de, deindustrialisation, the composition of the the first the then first division changes quite a bit, with a lot of the clubs from the the northern industrial towns on the decline, while clubs from you know the, the more affluent um, uh, areas of the south were actually on the ascendancy. So so. Yeah, there, there is a, a an element of looking at it through the gaze of somebody who's involved in planning and regional development, but also in the end, it's the story of a football fan, like many others, just thinking a bit about where I've come from, where the games come from, the highs and the lows, the personalities and the places that combine to make it such a fabulous experience that just can be going all these years. So you've got the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> but if all the programmes were being swept away in the tide and you could only save one, would you save the wartime one or a United... Well, it would be the United 68 one, wouldn't it? No, I think it would be the post-Munich one. Oh, gosh. You... Sheffield Wednesday. Were you there? No, my mum wouldn't let me go because mm. she said it was just too much. And that was what Jimmy Murphy and the players borrowed from Bolton. Yeah, I know. They signed, they signed Ernie Taylor from Blackpool mm-hmm. and Stan Crowder from Aston Villa. But the rest were basically 18 players, you know, all reserves. 
Yeah. How wonderful. And of course, famously, the, the line-up is blank in the programme. Yes. And you've got a copy of that? Yeah. And does that sit first among equals? Is that out on display? It's in one of the boxes here with all the others. Yeah, and... It's... 2,000 others, which one day is your son going to have? I know it's horribly morbid, but <laughs> where are they? No, where are they going to go? Because Irene's going to chuck them. Yes, yeah, she is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we have this discussion. His, his sisters definitely point the finger, the finger towards Chicago, where my son is based. Ah. So he'll at some point have some, some decision to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of the programmes were his. That's, that's the, the key, a key point. You know, I, I had the ones from when I was a kid, but then he worked as a a paper round when he was a teenager in the 1980s and reinvested his earnings in in football programs uh, but much more strategically than me you know he'd, he'd buy the kind of lowest attendance or the, the highest home goal scores or something like that and uh, so a lot of the programs are actually his if we if we rigorously went through and assigned each one to, to one or other of us um, but of course, he, he he went off to to do a PhD um, in the states in in the mid, early mid nineties, and um, you know has been in Chicago for goodness knows how long now. Um, you know, coming on twenty years. I don't know. I don't know what what will happen to them. Certainly, there's there's some some really classics in there. I will make an early bid to house it. When, <laughs> when there is a proper football library, because at the moment it's just a mind palace and just behind me on shelves. Um, and I'm sure your son gets up at stupid o'clock when United are playing at noon on a Saturday. He's up yeah, at that, five watching yeah, he, the he NBC watched, coverage. That, yeah, that's, uh, that's one thing I always used to confuse my mum when she was alive, that we, we could be watching the same match at the same time when he was six hours behind us. Mm. And I'm pleased that, is he a red... Um, not Red Sox. Is he a Cubs fan as well? Not really. He doesn't really follow the American sport very much. He's, he's pretty much a football fan. As you should be. So you have done your job, Cliff Haig, very well <laughs> to the best of your ability. Uh, it isn't just a book of programmes, although there are pro- programme spotlights. It's kind of like Next Slide, Please, where you're Chris Whitty introducing each programme. But it is a social history with cultural artefacts. Uh, programmes, programmes, football and life from wartime to lockdown, published by Pitch, uh, in advance of the new season, the interrupted new season, uh, because yeah. there's no football for seven weeks. Will you be watching Qatar, or will be will you be washing your hair or something? <laughs> um, I don't know at the moment. It still seems some way off uh, this this thing in November, December, um, and of course, at this point, in Scotland are not going to be there. That was that was one of the big hopes that. Uh, this could finally be a, a World Cup where uh, where Scotland would be represented, even if it wouldn't quite have the delirium of uh, Argentina '78 when uh, when when Scotland were were headed off with Ali's army. But um, at least it might have had the, the prisons of '98. But that's gone with the, the defeat by Ukraine. So so we'll, we'll see. We'll see dark days ahead. I think. Oh. oh, no, we never end with pessimism in the library. <laughs> we have to go optimistically. Alex Ferguson is 80. You, he's a couple of years older than you. That's um, right, yeah. He has followed in the footsteps of Matt Busby and Jock Steen to become a fine ambassador for football. Do you have only good feelings for him? I think a lot of people have got quite negative feelings for him, actually. Uh, but uh, as a United fan... You know, I 
I'll be forever grateful for the team that he provided, or the teams that he's provided, and the joy of winning the league again after so many years, which was was immense in in '93. Yeah, again they played good football, and he he seemed to have the right sort of spirit. And of course, he did bring Monsieur Eric, who remains again one of the one of the idols for the the qualities he brought. I always wonder whether he tried to explain principles of existentialist philosophy to Gary Pallister but um, <laughs> who knows No, that was his time off that's why he wanted to train so much because he didn't want to be in a position where he could explain it to Pallister <laughs> uh, there's a book coming out this August it's Matt Dickinson of the Times he's written a book about the treble winning side so they'll be in the news again where were you when United uh, won at Barcelona against Bayern? I didn't, I didn't go it was during term time I was teaching and things I was now, I wasn't head of school then, but I was, uh, I, yeah, it really wasn't possible to go. So I was watching it at home, and uh, I, I remember saying, yeah, they've won it. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the, the sort of stunning uh, last couple of goals. And I've still got on my wall here, turning to my left, uh, a, a picture of the Oli Solskjaer's winning goal oh, uh, with, with autographs around it. Oh, that's wicked. And you know the final question that I'm legally obliged to ask. Have you got the match programme. Yes. Just like the library! Just like the library!